Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Since 2010, the most listened to show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is, without a doubt, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Podcast are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at tedhart.com on iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach Podcast, Ted Hart. And welcome here to this latest podcast of the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, we have a very big show. This is our year-end show. Uh, so, of course, uh, always here at year-end, Kay Sprinkle Grace uh, is our uh, page two expert. Uh, but before we get to our uh, page two uh, expert, uh, we uh, have several uh, people who are going to be here at the top of the show uh, that uh, are going to uh, help us with a number of different uh, topics. And uh, first up, let's move right on over uh, to page one news. You've been listening to the nonprofit. And first up here on the nonprofit coach here on page one news is Michael Nielsen. Michael Nielsen is the marketing communications and public policy vice president at AFP, and he's here to give us the Association of Fundraising Professionals minute. Michael Nielsen, welcome here to the nonprofit coach podcast. Thank you, Ted. I really appreciate you, ha- appreciate you having me on. Happy to be here. Yeah, so bring us up to date. Uh, we're here at uh, calendar year end, obviously a very important time for all fundraisers. Uh, bring us up to date with what's happening and what uh, the members and the listeners here of the Nonprofit Coach should know about AFP. Sure. I think there's, uh, there's obviously a lot going on, and this is, of course, you know, as you well know, what the busiest time of the year for fundraising. Um, We've got uh, a number of things going on. I'd say one of the most important is I think we just released, or uh, a couple of weeks ago, released the findings from the uh, third quarter report from the Fundraising Effectiveness Project. And I, th- I think the re- if, if people aren't familiar with that, that tracks giving um, quarterly uh, from actual uh, giving data that we get from thousands of organizations. And it shows a, a really interesting time, one that I think giving so far, as we often find through three quarters of the year, um, is down, but as, as most fundraisers know, uh, you know, the fourth quarter is always the most critical. But what we're seeing every year now, and this is the third year, is that we have farther and farther to go to make up in that third quarter, and that, that's kind of concerning. So we've got uh, some tips through the uh, Fundraising Effectiveness Project about, you know, some of the issues that I know that you've talked about in terms of donor retention, donor cultivation, that kind of thing, um, to work on improving those levels of giving um, as we continue to see uh, a really increased I think more more focused on major giving 
uh, more and more, and we're seeing uh, kind of lower levels of giving uh, drop very slowly but surely. We're seeing that in a lot of different kinds of research. So I think there are some real important tips and, and some important uh, advice that uh, fundraisers can get through the fundraising effectiveness project. So that is um, certainly a key thing is, you know, as we're dedicated to kind of keeping people up in the fundraising uh, environment and uh, making sure they've got sort of the best practices and, and ideas moving forward. Terrific. And for our um, listeners today who would like a link to the Fundraising Effectiveness Project, we have posted that at facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart. Uh, you can follow along today for all of the links uh, from today's show. Uh, Michael? Absolutely. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, I think the second thing, though, is, is as particularly as we move forward into 2020, one of the things that uh, AFP is working on is is obviously we're always we're, we'll always be dedicated to fundraising education and training that's our that's our bread and butter that's that's one of our key missions but we're also i think over the last couple of years are, are beginning to look at issues that affect fundraising but aren't directly related to fundraising skills um so things like leadership development um as we you know have, have done some recent studies um showing some real concerns about leadership and management toxic cultures at nonprofits that are that while not directly related to, fund, to fundraising are impacting the way uh, and the ability of, of fundraisers to flourish and to practice their jobs at the highest level. So, you know, we're looking at issues like that uh, and developing some curriculum around leadership development. How do you lead up, leading the board, leading your uh, president and CEO, issues like that. Um, as you know, we launched the Women's Impact Initiative a couple of years ago to look at gender equity issues in the profession. And we, we still have a way to go in terms of the gender gap and sexual harassment and uh, the proportion of women in, in senior leadership positions that is way behind um, their overall representation in the profession. Uh, we're also launching in 2020 uh, a campaign looking at mental health awareness and self-care. Uh, we're seeing, we just had a webinar on that, uh, actually I guess last week, uh, that was really well attended. Hun hundreds of people um, uh, hearing about how they can take care of themselves uh, you know, obviously during the holidays is a stressful time, but just throughout the year and making sure that their colleagues and their employees uh, uh, are in the state of mind and have the resources uh, to do their jobs effectively, because that is that is a huge issue that's just not being talked about right now. So it's those kinds of, um, I don't want to call them secondary issues, uh, because they're, yeah. they're really critical to fundraising performance, um, and there are things that uh, we're hearing members want us to address. So I think it's that, that, that mix of both your fundraising education, um, but as well as these these other issues that affect the the workplace environment and the workplace culture that we uh, that we all know are so critical to success. Well, Michael, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing this information uh, with our listeners. I think there's a, a number of us uh, in the uh, the nonprofit sector who are looking to AFP right now with you know uh, you know a lot of uh, pride in that it, it seems that AFP is moving back to what, what I would consider to be uh, a space that it, it once really held dominance in, uh, and that's a, a space that, that has research looking at the cutting-edge issues, convening people together to learn, um, and, and not to say that AFP should move away from sort of the nuts and bolts and the how-to, uh, but there's a lot of people who do nuts and bolts and how-to, and I think an association of fundraising professionals um, international um, really should be looking at the, the kinds of issues that you spoke of today. So uh, bravo to, uh, to AFP here at uh, calendar year end, a very important time, as we said, for all fundraisers. 
Um, and Michael, we can't thank you enough for bringing us the Association of Fundraising Professionals Minute here on the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you, Ted. Really appreciate it. Great. Next up uh, here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach is a good friend of mine I'd like to introduce you uh, all to, um, and that's uh, Steve Culbertson, uh, who uh, is uh, currently the President and Chief Executive Officer at Youth Services America and, and holds a very important space uh, in the, the nonprofit sector. He's held that position since May of 1996 and certainly has been a thought leader in uh, uh, the area of uh, youth service to America in a variety of different forms. And one of the things that, you know, I always look to uh, Steve and, and others uh, is what's happening in, in the nonprofit space that is very consequential uh, sometimes historical, um, certainly uh, newsworthy. Um, and so welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Steve Culperson. Hey, Ted, it's good to be with you. Steve, it's great to have you here because, um, you know, this is, as our listeners know, the, the nonprofit coach is completely nonpartisan. We do not talk about uh, political partisan issues. And I say that only because, there have been some historical things that, that have happened that may sound political, but, but we're not addressing them here on the Nonprofit Coach in a political way at all. Uh, but uh, I wanted to get a chance to chat with you about some, uh, some rather historical uh, uh, things that have happened that, that, I, that uh, I think, and I wanted to get your, your read on, are um, important to the nonprofit uh, sector. Um, one in, in particular that I wanted to uh, draw everyone's attention to is just uh, last month the uh, uh, historic uh, nature of a report uh, in the, the New York Times uh, that uh, the Donald J. Trump Foundation uh, was uh, found in violation of a variety of different uh, rules and use of uh, misuse of monies that were entrusted with that foundation. Um, Steve has now been ordered to pay a $2 million fine. So I wanted to uh, get a chance to chat with you a little bit about why, why is this important and why would we take even a minute of time here on the Nonprofit Coach to talk about, uh, about that and related um, issues? Well, I, I think that the, the American public has a very strong relationship with the nonprofit sector, and there's a, a, uh, a sentiment of faith, you know, that when I make a gift to an organization that they'll use it wisely, and that that, uh, that nonprofit, that 501c3, is legitimate, that it's actually dealing with issues of health and education, human service, human rights, the environment. Lord knows we've got lots of need out there, and every dollar counts. And so when we hear about uh, nonprofit uh, sort of scandals like this with the Trump Foundation, they're eye-opening, uh, particularly when you know, a sitting president of the United States is fined $2 million uh, for abuse of power, basically, was the word that the attorney general used. And, that's right. uh, you know, that, that's really a, a, a remarkable, uh, a remarkable uh, you know, sort of story, I think. And, and it wasn't just in the New York Times. It's been literally across all the media platforms out there. That's right. And, that's yeah, right. I think there's been... You know, just people are so shell-shocked uh, by what's going on here in Washington. Um, 
that there was almost, you know, no backlash. There was no uh, people barely batted an eye. Uh, and I and I think we're but just you, at this point Steve, um, you, where. You, yeah, you mentioned the Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, and I just I wanted to add to where you're going with this um, a statement that that she issued. Uh, along with uh, with this uh, this order, uh, charities are not a means to an end, uh, which is why these damages speak to the president's abuse of power, and represent a victory for not for profits that follow the law. Funds have finally gone where they are deserved to eight credible charities, and she went on to state that the settlement also requires that uh, Donald Jr. Uh, Eric and Ivanka Trump must undergo training uh, so that this behavior doesn't occur in the future again. So we we note this again as as you said because of its historic nature. But again, you were sharing with us why this ma- should matter to all of us. Yeah, I think I think we you know those of us who get up every morning and raise money and uh, you know do the do the good work. Uh, of, of our nonprofit organizations, really, um, you know, we, we have a special relationship um, with both the law and a special relationship with our donors and a special relationship with the people whom we serve. And if you, if you desecrate that trust on any of those three relationships, you know, to me, uh, it, it takes down the whole the whole movement, and uh, and it's really a black eye, I think, uh, in the nonprofit world. You know, I, I think as as the attorney general said, this is a victory for for nonprofits that do follow the law, which is the vast majority of us. Um, but you know, when it's the president of the United States, and and when it's in the millions of dollars, and it just builds on on sort of his historic record you know when he came into office he was uh uh he was being sued by over 3500 different entities and i think we we go back to trump university you know on the education side uh right after he took office he had to pay a fine of 25 million dollars for defrauding literally thousands of students uh who had enrolled at trump university which was just a completely fraudulent place um so, you know, there's, there's a, a, a record here of this guy, and he's not the only one, you know, but he is president of the United States, and I therefore right. think it's it's important to and, elevate this as you're doing and, right. and to illuminate this that, you know, fraud is, is uh, anytime there's money, there's going to be fraud. And I think right. those and of us who wanted- are running organizations need to be careful of that. And that's why I want to thank you again for coming on to help us just elevate this issue. Uh, Even just today um, in the Salt Lake Tribune, there is a whistleblower claim uh, that the uh, LDS Church has stockpiled $100 billion in charitable donations and dodging uh, taxes and and, uh, accusations uh, about uh, deceptive practices for uh, for donors in, in that regard. So I think here at year end, Steve, you would agree that you know, this is not raised as a political issue, and anyone that would see it as a political issue is completely missing the point, and that is that there is a fragile trust that we all hold with the public when it comes to charitable activities, and the laws are put in place to protect the public and to ensure that the funds that they entrust 
with the nonprofit sector are spent for those purposes. And any time that anybody, regardless of their political persuasion, uh, breaks that trust, it actually hurts all of us. Uh, in the sector and potentially uh, breaks a trust that could harm people's lives who are counting on the services that many nonprofits provide. Right. And I think in terms of the LDS church, for example, um, you know, you think of that hundred billion dollars that they've got socked away uh, that is not going to the charitable purposes for which it was given. And you think how many people are hungry on the streets, how many people are not able to get presents for their children, uh, how many people are not going to be able to serve a, a Christmas meal to their family? Uh, how many people are going to have to work on Christmas um, because they need the money? Uh, and you you go back to, you know, just the amount of pain in the world. All you have to do is, is walk along any street of any American city and see that and listen to people's stories. And, you know, that money ought to be into the system doing the work that it was given toward uh, you know, I have the same feeling about these donor advised funds. You know, all that money just sits there in the in the charitable. You know, whether it's Schwab or whether it's Fidelity or Vanguard, people gave that money. They took the tax deduction, and yet that money isn't working. You know, to mm-hmm. to make the world a better place. It's just churning right now till eventually it'll be given out. But there's no rule on it. You know. You right. need that money out there. Well, you need it right in that now. regard, I I, I will just insert. Yeah, I will just insert there that uh, the average donor advised fund uh, grants uh, upwards of 22%, whereas the average private foundation uh, gives away 5%. Um, So I think there's varying degrees, but I think across the board, um, the issue here is one of trust. Uh, following the rules uh, as as they are stated, and making sure that the the uh, the emphasis is on getting funds to those in need and where donors have entrusted them to go. Um, Steve, I want to thank you for your time, and I'm I'm hoping that perhaps you'll come back on the show and and explore these topics with us uh, when we can take a little bit more time, uh, because unfortunately uh, there isn't just one story here, but there are many stories. Uh, that just sort of you know speak to the heart of the nonprofit sector and the trust that we must all uh, uh, hold for the for the community. And, and thanks particularly to your listeners. You know, I was I was one of the original CFREs in that first year when they launched it, and the work that your listeners do to to help people out there, which is the most important thing. I think at the end of the day, that's really what we're talking about. Is just terrific, and I want to wish them all a, a happy happy holiday season. Well, that's great, and that's a great transition. I'll actually bring uh, Jeff Stanger in here. He is uh, about ready to give us the CFRE International Minute here on the Nonprofit Coach, and since you were one of the very first CFREs, I'm sure uh, he'll want to say hello to you. So, uh, Jeff, uh, come on in, and uh, Steve is still here with us for a minute or two. Yeah, Steve, hello, and thank you, and that was a perfect transition. So glad to be here, Ted, and and uh, happy to talk about CFRE. Terrific. Bring us up to date on what's happening with CFRE International. Sure. So our next uh, deadline is January 15th. That will be the next application deadline, and that will be for the first quarter test window, which will go through March 15th. And it was something to remember for those of you, it's, you know, two weeks left in the year. If you have um, personal development funds uh, in your budget, I know we all don't have those, but you know, some organizations do. And if those are there and they're sitting there and, and it's a use it or lose it kind of situation, 
a couple things to consider. One, you can get your application in uh, now, even if you don't want to test until, you know, somewhere later in the next year, you can at least use that money to do that. Or uh, this is a great time uh, if you can sign up for, go to My Education Finder on our website and look for, let's say you need two or three more continuing education points. You can find a webinar, uh, find a local uh, event near you where you can pick up those last few points. So just a little reminder on that. Terrific, terrific. What else is going on now that we're here at uh, year end? Uh, well, one thing that you might want to check out is we have on our CFRE Central, which is our community, and anytime, once you create an application, either you're a CFRE, uh, existing CFRE, or you're working towards it, you have access to CFRE Central, which is our community. And about a month ago, we did a, an Ask, Ask Me Anything with, uh, and I was actually the host of that, and we did crisis communications. And we were blown away by, by the turnout, the number of questions people asked, uh, how many times people have downloaded that since that. So, you know, all of us have to wear in this field a lot of different hats. And eventually, you're going to be at an organization where something comes along, it thrusts you into the spotlight, you're having to answer questions to donors, to the press, whatever. And how do you approach that, especially if you're not the one who's always been out there in front and, and had that kind of training. So if you want to go to CFRE Central and, and look at that, uh, ask me anything, there's a great deal of valuable information and probably questions that your listeners have had but maybe were a little afraid to ask, uh, they can check out that thread. Terrific. Thank you for, uh, for drawing our attention to that. And, of course, we're going to uh, post the link to CFRE.org. Uh, over at facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart uh, so that uh, folks can uh, uh, pick up on all the topics today, including the deadlines uh, that are coming up and the uh, opportunity uh, to also um, uh, listen in uh, on uh, Ask Us Anything. Um, I want to thank you, Jeff, for all the information that you've brought us uh, this year, and we look forward to having you back here on the Nonprofit Coach in the new year. Well, thank you, and we appreciate your show and, and all you do to, uh, to uh, educate and, and set, you know, give a spotlight on, on what we're doing. So thank you. Terrific. And now we're going to head right on over to page two. Our listeners, uh, Kay Sprinkle Grace really needs no introduction, as she is always the uh, speaker that our producer, Diane Peach, uh, schedules here as our last show of the calendar year. Uh, why is that? Because Kay Sprinkle Grace is so popular. Uh, this show is always one of the most listened to podcasts. Uh, Kay is a San Francisco-based organizational consultant providing workshops and consultation to local, regional, national, and international organizations in strategic development planning, case, and board development, uh, staff development, and other issues related to leadership. And today, uh, Kay has brought to us, uh, suggested, a very, very important topic, and that is what comes after giving and receiving. And Kay, I have to say, uh, all of our speakers today, Steve Culberson, uh, Michael Nielsen, uh, Jeff Stanger, have all talked at various uh, uh, levels of this issue of stewardship and trust 
uh, and yes. working with our donors. So these have been great tee-ups for they you. They have been so great Welcome back, I've, Kate Sprinkle Grace. Yeah, I've been I've been sitting here taking notes. Um, so I've been in this business a long time, as you know, Ted, and I've worked with organizations that are large and small and new and venerable. Um, and the one consistency I find is their inconsistency in stewardship. And it is the most overlooked, underfunded practice. And it doesn't matter, as I say, the size of the organization. So I'd like to just suggest a few things this morning in our time together. And I'd like to frame it by starting with two quotations that I think are pretty provocative. Um, G.K. Chesterton said that I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. And then an Estonian proverb, who does not thank for little, will not thank for much. And that really is the tee-up for what I want to say, is that one of the, the things that we do, Ted, that is just so annoying, is I go in and I say, so how do you thank your, your new donors of under $100? Oh, we send them a receipt. Oh, really? And then, of course, during the year, you email them. Or, no, no, we're just, we just don't have the bandwidth. And we're short-staffed, so we have to focus on our major donors. So what I want everybody who's listening to do, and if, you're, if it's better for you to draw it, grab a pencil or a pen and a blank piece of paper. You don't need a big one. Draw the traditional donor pyramid, which is what we were all trained to. Then next to it, draw an hourglass. And then next to it, draw an inverted pyramid. The donor pyramid has already morphed into an hourglass. We are so skinny in the middle because we have this big base of, of small donors and then we have this bulging base of major donors. But what you heard earlier from our colleagues is that we're not getting those small donations. So what I'm telling you now is that what we need to watch for is that we don't end up with an inverted pyramid with a whole lot of big gifts on the top and no gifts at the bottom, very few in the middle, and because the law of physics says that that pyramid is going to flop over. And there have been historic times in philanthropy in the United States when that has happened. Uh, there were a cluster of small regional colleges in the Northeast that relied on major gifts and on planned gifts and guess what? When those were all gone, they had no donor base, and some of them had to close their doors. So what I'd like to just do is talk a little bit about why this happens and then give you some ideas about how to keep it from happening. Uh, yes, it is the time of giving and receiving at year end, but it's got to be the beginning of year-round stewarding, thanking, gratitude. So gratitude is deeper than thanks. Thankfulness is the beginning of gratitude. Gratitude is the completion of thankfulness. Thankfulness may consist mostly of words, but gratitude is shown in acts. So where we are falling down is that we are not interacting with our donors other than our major donors after they make year-end gifts. 
it's almost as though we believe that, well, you know, people really don't like to give, but, you know, you're in, they feel charitable, so they give, and then so we just leave them alone because, after all, we'll come back to them in a year. And But here's some things I'd like you to think about. First of all, the factor of acquisition costs. I think, Ted, it's still up around 11 times more to acquire a donor than it is to renew an existing donor. Yeah, but and, and, and Kay, let me let me just let me just sure. accentuate that because that that's as you were as you were going through this, that's exactly where my mind was going. Is is I think you're absolutely right in your premise that stewardship is something that often gets lost, or it's the last thing that's done, or what. However, it's not often done very well because it's not seen as central to the overall relationship that that we have with donors. Yet we know, as you just said, that it's so much more expensive to find a new donor and to cultivate a new donor than to get your next gift from a current donor. How has the nonprofit sector missed those two points coming together at the same time? Because they've thought of renewal as renewal of the gift instead of the ongoing renewing of the relationship. This is a key point that I think we miss because renewing is renewing the passion, the engagement, the sense of belonging, and knowledge of the impact. And I learned very early in my career that annual giving is not once a year. It's all year round. And I have seen in organizations where the donors are constantly engaged with news of the impact of their investment Uh, invitations to hear special talks or presentations. It doesn't have to be lavish. It can be something that's going on in the organization that they invite people to, is that you then have an opportunity. I remember in my first job, um, we had an opportunity with, it was a, a center for children with learning disabilities, and we had an opportunity to acquire a set of books for early readers that were specifically designed And we didn't have a budget for it. And the staff came in and I said, you know, I'm going to ask my friends at Xerox Park if maybe they would be interested in doing it because they were very engaged. We had engaged them as donors. We had renewed them. They had events at our facility. And I called. You know, the next day we had a $7,000 check from their employee fund because they knew us. They felt good about us. They'd met these teachers. So I think that we miss the, the impact of renewal as being, you know, we think about John Gardner's work in self-renewal and how it manifested in Bob Waterman's work in institutional renewal. It is the constant reaching down and pulling up the good feelings that you have about an organization. And also, it influences our messaging between AF. And that messaging drifts too easily into scarcity rather than abundance. And so what happens is that I give, let's say I send $250 to you, which is not a big gift, but maybe for me it is. And yet a mid-year message from you is, well, we are, you know, we're struggling now. And instead of saying, you know, thanks to the generous outpouring, we've been able to sustain a number of our programs. And we are now looking to add a new program and we wanted to make you aware of it. You know, we're building on your investment. So 
we have to look at our messaging. We rely a lot on social media, but some of our donors are not doing social media so much for their giving. They still, many of them still respond to emails, particularly ones that are personalized for them that say, I wanted to tell you about the impact of your gift for this particular program and, and then describe what happened. And then the simple line, thanks to you, we're able to keep these children safe, something like that. Well, that then makes me feel renewed. So it, it draws you directly to the mission. I, I'm wondering, Kay, have, have we just done, uh, done ourselves in as a fundraising profession by not putting the emphasis on calling ourselves relationship managers? Oh, totally. And, and putting totally. the emphasis on the dollar and the, the act of yep. fundraising. Yep. And the point that you're making is, is that's just part of the journey. That's not the actual right. reason for the interaction. It's the relationship itself. Absolutely, because what we know is that philanthropic investment is a social investment, right? It transcends giving, donating, or contributing, and it requires our diligence and care because it is all about relationships. And you've heard me say many times that fundraising isn't about money, it's about relationships. And what is always thrilling to me is when I'm working with a client who says, you know, we really get it that this is about relationships and that we mustn't be concerned if somebody doesn't give in a year. And I had a, an experience as a volunteer in a Stanford campaign where I went to a donor that I'd gone to a long time and, whoa, you know, he had two kids at Stanford and he was starting a new business. And the temptation at the, at the staff level was, well, because he said, I won't be able to give for several years and was to just put him in the mail program, you know, just put him so he got a letter, and if he wanted to give, fine. And I said, no, I said, I'd like to continue calling him and talking to him. And I did. And when the next campaign rolled around, the kids had graduated, his business was up and running and flying, I might add, and he endowed a professorship for $2.1 million. Now, the point is that over those four years that he was unable to give, I still called him a couple of times a year just to update him. See how he was doing, and it makes a difference. We had, with a campaign I'm doing right now, we had a major gifts officer who followed up persistently but not annoyingly, as did the volunteer with a, uh, a, a major donor candidate. They had a million-dollar proposal in front of her. They finally connected with her last week at her request, and guess what? They had decided to give $2.5 million because one of the things that was proposed to them was something that they thought they'd really like to do relative to this campaign. So we also, Ted, I think we, we succumb to assumptions. A small gift comes in, either online or through the mail. Still, some still do come in through the mail. And because it's a small gift, again, we don't assign resources to it. But we don't know if that's the widow's might, or whether this is a test gift from someone right. who wants, who loves our mission and wants to see how we will respond to them as yeah. a person who doesn't make a large gift right so immediately. So true, Kay. As, as you and I have discussed on this show 
several times. Oftentimes, those annual donors are donors with training wheels. They're testing you out. They're not, you're not the only one that they're making a gift to, but they are making note of how you interact with them. That's right. But they learn about your organization. They're not ready to make a major investment in you, but are you missing the opportunity to allow them to learn enough about you to take those training wheels off to move up that donor pyramid? Okay, we're going to take a very quick break, and when sure. we come back, I want to talk to you more about this stewardship issue, but also I want to learn from you how has the topic of stewardship become one that is more associated to religious giving, and how have most nonprofits, as you say, what comes after giving and receiving? It's stewardship, but many nonprofits miss that point, and we'll be right back. Life gets busy. Wouldn't it be nice to have a central place where you could save what's on your mind? With Google Keep, you can stay on top of your world by quickly and easily organizing everything you want to remember. No matter where you are, finalize door list for Thursday's gig. So when you find inspiration, you can file away your ideas. And Google Keep stores them safely across all your devices. And when the time comes, you'll have everything covered. Save what's on your mind. Google Keep. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always free and always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. On iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now back to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. And we are back here live with Kay Sprinkle Grace. Just a quick note, uh, after today's show, we do uh, have a little bit of a holiday hiatus, and we will be back live with you on February 18th for the next Nonprofit Coach Podcast. So, Kay, this, this topic of stewardship that seems to, in a lot of people's minds, uh, be a topic that is more attributable to religious giving. How how have we segregated these things out, and why have most nonprofits missed the boat on what comes after giving and receiving? That's a great that's a great observation. And uh, among the many things I learned from the late Hank Rosso was the origin of the word steward. <laughs> and it's, it's funny. Uh, it originally, a steward was a keeper, was the keeper of the sty, as in the animal sty. And then it changed in the Middle Ages. A steward was the keeper of the hall. Then when it came into religious use, it was the name that was given to the campaign to raise money. So, in fact, I'm looking at the button from Grace Cathedral in San Francisco that somebody gave to me because it says 100% Grace, which I am, you know, 100% Grace. And uh, But it was their stewardship campaign. So how do we then marry those two ideas? I think we marry those two ideas of the idea that in certain institutions perhaps a stewardship campaign means raising the money. But stewardship in our broader sense of it in philanthropy is how do we keep 
those engaged. So we are the keepers of the hall, if you will. We are the people who are responsible for maintaining the relationships, uh, maintaining an organization that can be trusted, getting back to the earlier comments that we had from the other speakers. And what we need to do is to make sure that we keep this hall or this organization and its, its resources, because there's yet another nuance about stewarding, Ted, as you know, which is you hear people say, yes, I give to them because they are good stewards of their assets. So being a And that's steward, high praise. That's high praise oh, for, very for high any praise. organization oh, that has that yeah, reputation. Yeah, say, yeah, but I give how, to them. How does an organization earn that reputation? What are, what are the aspects that are likely to have your donors say that about you? I believe that it is always coming from abundance, not scarcity, because because we tend to fall back on feeling like a needy organization and transmitting to our potential donors and our renewing donors. Oh wow! In fact, I was in a board meeting. I was in a meeting last night, and one of the committee members said, "Yo, we've just got to tell them we really need help." And I said, you do that, I walk out of this room, and I don't work with you anymore. I said, I will never work with an organization that comes from scarcity rather than abundance. There are other ways of saying it. So what happens is when we come from scarcity, we begin to indicate that we are not stewarding our assets, our revenue very well, and that we're constantly in need of money. Instead of saying, look what we do. You know, every dollar, I'm working with the San Francisco Marine Food Bank right now. They are fantastic, saying every dollar you give us leverages this much food in the community. And that gives them a wonderful reputation in this community for being excellent stewards of their assets and their revenue to really make it work in the community. Because what we need to remember is that philanthropy is about long-term, if philanthropy without long-term stewardship is not philanthropy. And here's the reason. So say that again. But say, but say that philanthropy again. Philanthropy without I, I, long-term <laughs> stewardship is not philanthropy. Oh, yeah. Because so philanthropy is transformational. And a giving program without a stewardship program is transactional. End of year, I ask you for a gift. You give me a gift. I may or may not thank you properly. But it's one and done. It's over. Yeah, and and when you allow your organization or any part, as you said, I will get up and I will walk out, if you are starting to, what you are really saying is, if your view of philanthropy is a transaction, then mm-hmm. you've missed point and I can't be part of that because you know long term they cannot be successful. It's not to say that every so often there's a campaign that that you know just strikes people's fancy and they sort of just get involved and there's that one off transaction they're not necessarily connected yeah. to the to the mission. But but what you said is that for that to be true philanthropy, that's a long term commitment. That's a relationship that takes real effort. And that's where professionals come in. And that's why I asked the question of, have we missed the, the boat ourselves by allowing what happens to be called fundraising as opposed to relationship management? Because it does put the emphasis on the transaction, which is important. And raising money is important. But as I've said on this show many times, 
if you just need the money, get in line, so does everybody else. Right. If you're so raising money else. just to make yeah. a budget, well, so does everybody else. Everybody's got a budget every year. The issue is, are you the, the, the conduit through which a donor can make great things happen that they sure. wish to have happen? Well, we need to remember, and, and again, this is something I deeply believe, not only that people give because we meet needs, not because we have needs, but the second part is that a gift to you is a gift through you into the community. You are not the end user of the gift. And so what you have to do is constantly renew the person's passion for the cause that you're meeting because otherwise they're not going to keep giving. I mean, go back to the the three models I suggested at the beginning. I mean, we used to, when you and I were learning this business, it was all about the donor pyramid, right? And it was just a logical progression. People started at the bottom, and we worked them up, and then at the very top was the reason, And the reason, Kay, that, that, that it was logical is because it was based on the building of a relationship over time and not just the transaction of totally. a credit card charge or, or other transactions. That's right. And then we've gone to the hourglass because we have neglected to move people up from the bottom of the hourglass into the top because we don't steward them until they reach some arbitrary level. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, she gave $500 this year. Uh, you know, let's invite her to something. Well, why didn't you invite her when she gave 50 right. What do you know about her? The other thing is that, you know, this danger of the inverted pyramid. I mean, listening to, you know, the, uh, the AFP uh, giving report, I mean, there's some real danger signs, and we saw them last year, and we blamed it on the Tax Act change. Is it really the Tax Act change, or is something happening with our donors? And I think that we have, and I mean, here's where I, you know, lay the big one out. We are way too organizational focused and not enough community focused. We're not looking, you know, through the windows. We keep looking in the mirror. And, yes, of course, I want to invest in an organization that is sturdy, that is trustworthy, but you become sturdy and trustworthy in my mind when I see the impact of your work in the community and not telling me about your organizational prowess. The one exception there is something that that Michael mentioned, and that is leadership. We are finding that people look as much to the leadership as they do to the mission. And this is an interesting profile of an emerging society that is becoming more uh, discerning, uh, much less emotion in the in the kind of in the ongoing giving, but not, of course, in that initial gift, uh, as the Hewlett study showed that they actually disbanded uh, years ago. They were trying to study what metrics first-time donors used and major donors, and it turned out it was not about metrics. It was about emotion. It was a connection they had. And so what we have to do is we have to fan that connection. And you, I think you're familiar with my models of transactional giving and transformational giving. And one of the things in transformational giving is that when you're stewarding that donor, you not only convey the impact, the metric side of it, but you convey the benefits because remember that philanthropy is based in values. People do not give to, ask for, join, or serve any organization whose values they don't share. Only in the relationship 
do we constantly renew and test and promote those values? And in fact, gratitude itself is a value. And if I am not walking my talk, then I can say, oh, I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful. And if I don't show you gratitude during the year, I am a big proponent of gratitude committees on boards, people who write thank you notes. We have a a new committee member at this organization that I was with last night. She is a master of thank you notes, and the one we love the most, a guy made a gift of $5,000. She wrote a a handwritten thank you note, and he wrote back with a gift for $2,500 in it. Wow, he said, I haven't seen a handwritten thank you note in so long. And so, you know, and that's, I think that we need to make people feel important and because the work we do is important. And that's right. And, and Kay, just uh, I'll share, I know you know this, but just to, it, that's one of the reasons, and it, and it boggles a lot of people's minds, that I run uh, an international donor advice fund that has given away over the last few years over a billion dollars to 110 countries, and I personally sign every single thank you letter. And that is so important. That, that takes a lot note, of time to do that, but I always right. have said if it's if it's worth it for the donor to take the time to transact the donation to us, it's worth it the time for me to sign the thank you letter. Totally. And the fact and and to make sure it's right. You know, I have seen, you know, CEOs who get the stack of letters and they just keep flipping up the bottom to hand sign it. They never look at the top. Oh yeah. They well, never I'm, look I'm, I'm the final I'm the final line in quality to? control. That's right. Is there is this somebody I know? And Can I put a personal note on it? That's right. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so Kay, I just want to note to our listeners that over at Facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart, uh, we have now posted the Gilbert Chesterton uh, quote that you uh, opened the show with. Uh, I, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Um, we've also posted the Estonian proverb, uh, who does not thank for little will not thank for much. Uh, we've also just posted your transformational infinity loop, the new approach oh, to, uh, to ask. Excellent. Just so that everybody has that and they have context to And you can uh, put, the, if you have the, the transactional, like, bell curve, uh, it's a good contrast to it because it reminds I'll, us I'll do that. that the curve is very, very finite and the transformational is the infinity loop. Uh, because that's right. That's and, the only and so we're we're posting right now the transactional bell curve, uh, the way we have. Excellent. Asked. Thank you so much. And I think Ted, you know, when it comes right down to it, what you and I know after all of our decades in this, is that philanthropy is truly a care cycle. That people give to us because they care. We provide services to people because we care, and we extend stewardship to our donors because they care that we care. And right. that if 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 we're getting it right, uh, which is the the topic right. of of today's show is, you know, as as you point out, stewardship is one of the oldest concepts in philanthropy, but oddly also one of the most neglected. Exactly. And as long ago as as Epicurus, you know, in the Roman times and getting back to what you and I talked about at the beginning about the 
the the issue where we put so much focus on acquisition. He has this wonderful quote, do not spoil what you have by desiring what you have not. Remember that what you now have was once among the things you only hoped for. Right. Yes. So just by way of finishing, um, there's seven ideas for how to make other people feel important through your messaging with stewardship. And the other thing I do want to say is that we assign budget to cultivation because it has a measurable result. We hesitate to assign budget to stewardship because the results are often long-term. And we have to correct that in our finance offices. We have to have budget for stewardship. So the ways to make others feel important, and it applies to our stewardship, one, use their name. Two, express sincere gratitude. Three, do more listening than talking. Four, talk more about them than about you. Five, be authentically interested. Six, be sincere in your praise. And seven, show you care. And I would like to close with the quotation that is at the bottom of my emails. Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. Get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. And that's from Rabbi Heschel. And I believe, Ted, that when you engage donors consistently and sincerely, you will be amazed. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, we're posting um, uh, the quote from Epicurus uh, today at uh, facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart. And we're just now um, uh, posting uh, for uh, for our, our listeners uh, the wonderful quote that you just shared by uh, Rabbi Abraham jo- Josiah Heschel. Yes. Um, so we've now reached that point in, uh, in the show. As, as you know, we have about five uh, minutes left where we get Kay Sprinkle Grace's uh, best tips for success in the new year. And, and Kay, we've been doing this long enough. It's now going we to have. be 2021. So how do our listeners succeed in 2021? I think that the going forward, philanthropy has got to be much more collaborative with other kinds of organizations in the community. The issues that we are dealing with, both chronic and critical, have reached a point where we need true community involvement. And we can lead the way. We have the trust. We have the knowledge, we have the experience, we have the, the people who are invested in us. And we need to become better thought leaders in terms of solutions. And, you know, I, I totally believe that the reason that philanthropy never, never kind of makes that next big stride is that we have focused entirely too much on our organizations and not on solutions. And this is not about us. And, in fact, in the best of all possible worlds, guess what? A lot of our organizations wouldn't have to exist if we could solve problems. The thing that is characteristic of of the, the American public, and, of course, you and I both work internationally, but I'm speaking now just to the U.S. public, is that we are great in a crisis. Give us a crisis and we're on it. We are texting money, we are volunteering, we're doing these things. But when that crisis becomes chronic, 
we move on to the next crisis. So the chronic issues of our society will continue to confront us. They have the potential for eroding trust in nonprofits for two reasons. One is that we do not tell our own story. We are storytellers, but we don't tell our own story well. And, you know, with all the issues we had on the southern border of the U.S., nobody was telling the story of those nonprofits down there that, frankly, were making all the difference in keeping families together and working very, very hard to, to lift this, this terrible smudge on our values as a society. These were nonprofits working together to see to it that they had an opportunity to alleviate this. So on the one hand, we don't tell our story. But the other hand is that we have become kind of siloed and we're like the philanthropic sector, but we should be the philanthropic movement. You've heard me say it before, and we did a forum here in San Francisco, the Rosso Forum this year, was called CanYour.org Thrive in a Hashtag World. What our newer donors coming in are looking for, they're, they're looking for results. And the results will happen when we do as my, my, my colleagues in Serbia do, and of course Serbia is a very small country, but when they have a countrywide problem, they are pulled together by a foundation there around the table. And it's, it's the Orthodox Church and it's the Chambers of Commerce and it's the corporations, the foundations, and they say, okay, we've got this issue. How are we going to work together to solve it? If we began working together, we would be able to solve a lot more of the problems than if we continue to break this pie into so many pieces. We are not about competition. We are about collaboration. We have, As we've said several times, Kay, on this, uh, on this show, you know, one of the best things that I, I think nonprofits can do, and I think you're, you're speaking to this, is to ask the question, why? And when I say why, why do you exist? Why, why, why does your organization continue okay. to raise money and to continue to do right. what it does? Are you still relevant? Do That's you right. still have a mission? Um, or do you exist out of habit? That's right. And, you know, I, I, that acronym TRUE that I work with now is, is so enlightening to people when I work with them because I said that this is what donors are looking for, and it's the word TRUE, and it's trust, relevance, urgency, and experience. And urgency is not your urgent need for money. <laughs> it is the right. urgent need that you are meeting in the community. But it is trust and relevance, and absolutely, you know, we need to, to remember that we've, and this why do you exist, I'm using that now to try to get people to write their mission statements. I'm saying put aside all the infinitive forms of the verb to to educate, to inspire, to heal, to whatever, to whatever. And I'm saying just finish the idea we exist because. And it is and hard great- for people, but I will tell you, Ted, you see the light coming on in their eyes. It is powerful. It is and powerful it also and says that there may be 22 organizations in your community with the same mission. That's right. 
and why do they all Be, exist? Hey, we're going to have to leave it there. I know, you we have to go once with, again. <laughs> with so many wonderful things to think about for the new year. But I think, I think again, this is powerful, uh, the message of stewardship, the uh, powerful, uh, the message of why you exist, and we cannot wait for you to be back on our show again uh, next year. And that's our podcast for today. Thanks, Ted. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcasts at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach.